Hello and welcome to the Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Maria Armudian. Anti-Asian hate crimes have been on the rise since the outbreak of COVID. What is at its roots? Doug Becker explores. I'm Doug Becker. Violence against Asian American and Pacific Islanders, or AAIP, has largely gone unreported in the United States. This changed this week with the murder of eight people, including at least six Asian American workers in Atlanta. On today's show, we will explore the roots of these crimes, the nature of hate crimes against the AAPI population, and what it means for a better understanding of the nature of hate crimes in the United States. Our guest is Brian Levin. He is the director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism and professor of criminal justice at California State University, San Bernardino. He is co-author of the book, The Limits of Dissent, and co-author of the publications, Report to the Nation, Hate Crimes Rise in the U.S. Cities and Counties in Time of Division and Foreign Interference, and Posing the Why Question, Understanding the Perpetration of Racially Motivated Violence and Harassment. Professor Levin, thank you for joining us. It's the first question. We've gotten a lot of reports about hate crimes, acts of violence against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, particularly this week, but, but certainly over the course of the last few months. Is it actually increasing? Is, is the reporting that's, that this is increasing accurate? And what's the nature of some of these crimes? We've seen an increase actually since hate crimes bottomed uh, in 2014 during the Obama administration. The FBI has collected data on this uh, for almost three decades, but we have usable data basically going back to 92. The worst year for anti-Asian hate crime was in 1996 when there were 355. Interestingly enough, that was also the worst year for another type of racial hate crime, hate crimes against African-Americans. At least in that instance, it was the worst year for African-Americans as a proportion of all hate crimes. Listen to this. In 1996, African-Americans constituted 42% of all hate crimes. However, by 2019, which is the last year that we have available FBI data, African-Americans constituted only 26%. And what we've seen, unfortunately, has been a rotation in various years. And sometimes these rotations uh, can last multiple years of different groups. So, for instance, a little over a decade ago, anti-Latino hate crime had a high plateau for about four years and then declined when unemployment went down, some of the horrendous political rhetoric around uh, various bills, including one in Arizona, and also the number of undocumented people crossing the southern border declined. So we saw a big decline in anti-Latino, but then they went up again a couple of years ago. Interestingly enough, middle of the last decade, anti-Muslim hate crimes hit a head and shoulder peak. And while the highest number that were reported were about 307, which was less than the 480, which came during 2001. But interestingly enough, even though the overall anti-Muslim hate crime numbers did not exceed that terrible year of 2001, which is also the worst year for hate crime overall, assaults beat 2001 in two of those three years in the mid-decade. Then we saw hate crimes against Muslims decline 
Although again, they did not decline to the previous levels. And we saw in the following years, anti-Latino and anti-Semitic go up. Then in 2020, we don't have FBI data, but our data showed something really interesting and just bear with me. We showed in 16 of the largest cities, and I don't know, maybe it's about 13, 14% of the American population, you know, close enough for government work, right? Anyway, 122 anti-Asian hate crimes in only 16 cities. To put that in perspective, for the whole country, in 2019, the FBI counted 158, and that was an increase. Actually, to follow up that question then, is there anything other than the fact that these are coming from just a handful of cities? Um, Are there regions of the country where we see uh, many more hate crimes? And is it just simply correlated with the amount of the population living in that area? So obviously you expect more anti-Asian American hate crimes in cities with large Asian American populations. Is that the best way to explain it or is there something else going on with respect to the distribution? I think that's pretty good. We noticed basically the Boston to Philly Metroplex and the West Coast we saw quite a bit, but we also saw spikes in other places. So there were cities that hadn't reported an anti-Asian hate crime for, for more than a year or so, start having them show up on the, on the radar screen. The problem is reported hate crimes are going to be the smallest tip of the iceberg because we have massive underreporting with respect to hate crime. And indeed, it wasn't until 2015 that the federal government found that a majority of hate crime victims actually do report their victimizations to police. But guess what? For communities like the Asian American community, probably the transgender community and others, we have very depressed reporting levels, particularly when there are cultural barriers, linguistic barriers, and also with regard to to law enforcement. What I can tell you is part of the problem is that we have a very uneven response to the virus of hate. And it's similar to that uneven response that we see with regard to COVID. In other words, in some places, the government is doing a good job and in other places they're not. One thing about chronology, if I could just throw that in, because we were talking about geography. First of all, we saw a 7% decline in overall hate crime. And anti-Asian, usually numerically for our reported hate crimes, reported to police, then reported by them to the FBI, have been very small. But we're looking for a probable record in New York City. And we could have a record as well. Why I think that? Well, first of all, we had 122 out of 16 cities. We actually have some more cities, but like cities like Long Beach, for instance, didn't count any for the last couple of years. You know, and people ask me, well, what about Atlanta? Atlanta only counted one hate crime in 2019, and it was a religion hate crime. So many places are doing a really bad job. Georgia itself counted 102, but that's still less than the city of Boston. In any event, here's an interesting chronology that we found because we hear a lot of talk about the president's statements and this and that. Around March 8th, Congressman Gosar used these stigmatizing terms, which I'm not going to use. We also saw Secretary Pompeo doing that as well. Then on March 16th, President Trump used these stigmatizing ethnic terms. And according to uh, some of our friends who did some other research, who actually counted them all up, they said that there were at least 20 references by the president using these terms. During that time, we found an increase in hate search 
And other folks have also found similar conditions. But I think it was around the 8th, 9th, and 10th of March of last year, March of 2020, that we started to see this stuff take off on Twitter and in search and social media before the president actually started using those stigmatizing terms. So we had like, uh, you know, a, a little bunch come before he spoke and then some after. But let me point an interesting thing out real briefly. Yes, it did happen. Google it. On March 23rd, uncharacteristically, President Trump tweeted about tolerance and then an oppressor spoke again about tolerance towards Asian Americans. I don't know if it's a coincidence, but that day a DHS report came out with a warning that Asian Americans faced a risk of being under attack. Unfortunately, that only lasted for one day, but can I tell you something? At least as far as our data can show, no anti-Asian hate crimes in New York or LA on March 23rd. That being said, when President Bush spoke six days after 9-11, hate crimes dropped precipitously the next day and into the next year. And we've seen consistently, whether it was around Charlottesville or his Muslim ban, or even the day after the election, November 9th, 2016, that was the worst day for hate crime going back to 2003. And November 20, uh, 2016 was the worst month going back to the first anniversary of 9-11, September 2002. So the reporting that you're giving on some of the quantitative data about the nature of these hate crimes, it seems like, if, if I'm understanding it correctly, it's somewhat weakened by the fact that the government entities, the cities or the states, are the ones doing the reporting as to whether or not a crime constitutes a hate crime. And then kind of a broader question, what exactly do we mean by hate crime as far as coding, you know, classifying, counting these crimes, what needs to be present to ensure that the crime qualifies as a hate crime? And I'm thinking in this Atlanta case, there's still a debate as to whether or not is this a hate crime, is it not, based on what the perpetrator said was his motivation. Is that what's determining what, whether something is a hate crime? How do we go about determining whether something is a hate crime? What an excellent question. And actually, the FBI has come out with over a dozen criteria. But they also talk about totality of the circumstances. Among the criteria is statements made by the perpetrator. Now, there have been reports in the international press that there were statements made by the perpetrator as he was committing these atrocities, but that hasn't been confirmed at all by the authorities in, in Georgia. So some of the things that the FBI says look for is not only statements by the perpetrator. And by the way, let me just say, uh, I've been involved in writing appellate and Supreme Court briefs on issues like this. And in a lot of these cases, the defendants are always trying to say self-serving things. So like in 2000, in an important case about the, the burden of proof you need to bring uh, a hate crime sentencing enhancer, as well as any enhancer, in that case, the court said, it can't just be a preponderance of the evidence, you know, just a slight tilt of the evidence. It has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. That bias motivation has to be established. So some of the other criteria that the FBI says to look at, you know, yes, statements by the perpetrator, but are there prior statements, for instance? What does the community feel? Is there some kind of significance about the location, the date? So I would be very careful about reliance on self-serving comments uh, by someone 
who uh, who says things that might expose them to less legal liability by saying it, particularly when it may contradict some of the unconfirmed reports that we're getting. That being said, look, the fact that all these establishments were owned by Asian people, the majority uh, of the people killed were Asian, uh, I think weighs in that direction. Now, remember, for data collection purposes, it's a different type of standard than actually proving beyond a reasonable doubt at trial. So I guess the big question that I would ask to your audience, do you feel as of now, based on what's out there, that there is probable cause to charge it as a hate crime? And again, that being said, a lot of hate crime homicides are not prosecuted as such because of a variety of technical legal issues that we could discuss perhaps later. Listen to Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. We're discussing the nature of hate crimes, the classification of hate crimes, and whether they're going up or down with Brian Levin of California State University, San Bernardino. So one of the challenges in prosecuting certain types of hate crimes, again, is trying to prove this intentionality. And I know it's been highlighted in recent days that the prosecuting or classifying anti-Asian American or Pacific Islander hate crime is a bit more challenging than, say, anti-Black or anti-Semitic hate crimes because the symbols that get attached to anti-Black hate crimes. Usually there's a reference to a noose or a burning cross or something, or in the case of anti-Semitism, usually a swastika or some sort of symbol. That could be changing with the references to COVID and some of the different you know, statements that you haven't said that I think we both understand, you know, the kinds of statements linking the virus to, to China and, and to Asian and Asian American communities. But how much is this a challenge when trying to classify something uh, as a hate crime, the importance of having some sort of a symbol that usually signals that it's a hate crime? There's a, an entity out there called TRAC, and what they found that state attorneys submitted more than 2,000 hate crimes uh, over the last decade, but only 15% led to court cases. And we have consistently seen, and, and home gamers can look up the California Attorney General's report, most hate crimes in California are not prosecuted under hate crime statutes, unfortunately. And that is because, as, as you so aptly indicated, the burden of proof requires evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. That being said, you can still have slurs, obviously, but I think there are other other uh, obstacles as well. And that is in some cultures, it's considered a sh- uh, shameful to be a hate crime victim. In other instances, uh, there are vulnerable victims within that community, elderly people or young people who might not be familiar with the criminal justice system. Additionally, there are oftentimes linguistic barriers, and and also fear that the authorities uh, might do something to hurt them. Because in many of the countries that people come from, the police aren't always your friend. So again, I guess some of the challenge here is the self-reporting challenge. I know uh, different government agencies, the LA County will release our annual report on hate crimes, but that's a a political motivation and, and it's driven by an expectation of voters, that this is the kind of information that, that people would want. Is that why some of these municipalities, why some of these states are under-reporting hate crimes? Is because, I mean, these are political positions 
and there could be a political motivation to try to, to underrepresent or underreport hate crimes. Oh, sure. Nobody wants to be the city of hate. But you know what? I just did a talk uh, for Santa Clara County, and they showed a big spike in overall hate crime. But it's because they're, they're doing a better job of, of getting them. Give me an example. Miami, Florida, the first eight years of last decade counted zero. Anaheim, I think, counted zero last year. Uh, Long Beach counted 18. So there's real variation, even in cities of similar population. And one thing that, that I found for some years, Orlando would count like single digits. Anaheim would count single digits or not, like when I say single digits, I mean real single digits, zero, one or two, right? And Hawaii wouldn't even participate in the FBI program. So I always used to joke the happiest places on earth are ones where they cover up hate crimes. <laughs> or appear to be anyway. We don't, want, we don't want to cast dispersions on folks. But there are significant issues. First of all, here in this state, we have some legislation that's up, AB 1126, to create an independent state of hate commission. Would love to see that. So that would get it out of the political realm and, and we could hold hearings that would question folks and have subject matter experts in the community as well come in. Also, model policies. Hate crime reporting is not mandatory in the United States. And I think we need to change that. If you're going to get federal funds, you better not throw a bunch of zeros on a sheet. Interestingly enough, uh, well over 85%, sometimes up to around 90% almost, of jurisdictions in the United States either don't report any hate crimes at all or affirmatively say we had zero. And so we saw cities like New Orleans for some years reporting like one, you know, and we saw cities in Texas reporting low double digits. Then we saw increases, but those increases weren't organic increases. It was because they were trying to do a better job. So here in California, there's, uh, there's another bill, AB 58 by Assemblyman Gabriel, the other one, uh, 1126 on the hate commission stuff. Uh, but uh, one of the things that we'd like to see are like, for instance, mandatory model policies, mandatory reporting. And also we'd like to see uh, police departments really coordinate with other government agencies, like who? Public works, for instance. If there's a, a swastika on an underpass, we want to make sure police get a chance to photograph it before it's painted over. We also want to make sure the community is involved. And on the intake side, it's really important to have outreach. And that's why it's important for groups like LA County Human Relations Commission. Wonderful folks, deal with them all the time, friends for many years. They actually instituted like a 211 number. So if you're in LA and, you, and for some reason you want to call 911, I would call 911 too, but you can always call 211. So what you need is better outreach, things like the 211 system and these portals like our friends at Stop AAPI Hate did. Uh, that's important too. But what I'd like to see is some kind of state or national portal so that you could put in where you are, your zip code, for instance, and what happened to you, and then get a list of folks who uh, you could call or who would help you out in addition, but also including law enforcement. Now, kind of circling back to the, the nature of this seeming spike in hate crimes against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, I guess the first is to confirm that there actually, you know, it has been a spike. And is this pretty closely correlated then with world events? So, I mean, the narrative that we have is that coronavirus is leading to more hate crime against Asian Americans, that the you know, the narratives about caravans were leading to uh, spikes in hate crimes against the Latinx community. Is that pretty closely correlated this, that events going on in the country are leading to, to these spikes in violence? 
yes, and I think there's at least three things. One is that catalytic event itself, right? But then there's a whole ecosystem and an industry that pushes division around that. So I think that that and this internet invective, we often see these things come along with several variables at once, right? So for instance, the catalytic event, social media and other types of invective discourse, which get it out and messages from the top, particularly the president of the United States. Uh, Again, six days after 9-11, President Bush spoke of tolerance at the Islamic Center of DC. Hate crimes dropped precipitously the next day and into the next year. If I could just make a metaphor, the Wall Street Journal said, I have the worst metaphors of any academic, but then they keep calling. Anyway, and, and what I would say is, I think the catalytic event is like the spark that makes a wildfire out of the dry kindling. And I think like the social media invective and this other type of leadership invective, lower than the president and other folks, uh, is more like a big gust of wind that drives that wildfire even worse. And then statements by people like a president can be either a fire hose or a gasoline hose. That's what I think the best metaphor is. So we see a combination of a catalytic event Uh, invective in news and social media, and then statements by a president can make a real difference. That's why it was so important that when President Biden and Vice President Harris went to Atlanta, they both made clear statements condemning this kind of activity. Because I, I think in the eyes of some haters, silence is indeed consent. One last thing. There are different types of offenders. Our friends at Northeastern University, Jack McDevitt and Jack Levin, what they found is that that there were at least three types of hate offenders. I think there's a fourth kind of mentally ill offender, and there's another fellow who thinks there's another type that conflicted offender, like this biracial character in Boston some years ago who actually uh, went out to hurt African-Americans, the conflicted offender. But anyway, let's get to the main ones. The thrill offender, oftentimes young people with no criminal records, they're intoxicated, often but not always operating in groups. And it's almost like uh, a sporting event, a peer activity. We're we're defining our machismo and in-group cred by lashing out at an out-group so that I that, that coalesces us closer. There's another type of offender called the defensive reactive offender. And they're responding to an incursion on turf or pride. So I interviewed a guy who was the first, <laughs> the first anti-Muslim hate offender after the Paris terror attacks. He had something to drink. He came home. He's living next door to a mosque. He watches a network on TV. And he shoots up his neighbor's mosque. That's what we call the reactive defensive offender. And what Robin Williams of Cornell, not the comedian, but the deceased scholar said, there is a printed circuit of stereotypes which identifies who's a legitimate target for aggression. And in these days, we have conspiracy theories around that and news events, but the switch gets turned on in different ways. For the thrill offender, what turns on that switch is a desire for peer validation and excitement and thrill. And they have relatively shallow prejudices, but they can still really hurt people, especially if they attack somebody and they deem or perceive the responsibility for the attack kind of diffused across the group. It's a lot easier to do bad things in mobs, right? The reactive defensive offender is usually older 
And that switch is turned on, as I said, by either pride or turf incursion. And then the third type, that switch is always on, that neo-Nazi skinhead, that Klan person. We've highlighted some of the responses to these hate crimes you know, that you've indicated, the importance that political leadership speak authoritatively, the importance of getting good reporting so we understand the nature of the data. And there's been quite a bit of an emphasis on the successful prosecution of hate crimes. In dealing with these sort of individual acts or the building of transparency with communities, it's extremely important the communities view the legal system as promoting justice as well as their protection. My question is, are there other tools, conversations that we have, including truth commissions, inclusion in the history books, these narratives? Because I know part of the response to what happened in Atlanta is a recognition that it really is not atypical of American history, but sadly, these types of crimes have actually been fairly consistent with American history, but you wouldn't see terribly many references to that in American history books. Or in LA history books, 10% of Asian immigrants in LA, well, in, in the 19th century, were massacred and you never hear about that. The Chinese Exclusions Act, a little bit. But unfortunately, a lot of our Asian brothers and sisters uh, have suffered in silence. And one of my friends who heads up in Asian American advocacy groups, I think aptly said, we're not going to prosecute our way out of this. We're not going to prosecute our way out of this. And so sort of last question then, if you were recommending you know, to the Justice Department, what recommendations would you give to try to use the power of the federal government as a means to address this spike in hate crimes? Uh, the federal government can provide a, a lot of assistance. First of all, I'd like to see federal legislation making hate crime reporting mandatory. Uh, here in the state, I'd like to see model policies become ma uh, mandatory. Uh, also, the Community Relations Service, which was created by the Civil Rights Act of 1964, is a non-enforcement agency that mediates community racial tensions. And actually, that mission was expanded later under the Obama administration. I also want to see greater help for human relations commissions, like here in LA. They do a wonderful job. Uh, so there are a variety of things that the federal government can do. And under the Shepherd Bird Hate Crime Act, which uh, became law in 2010, there is aid that can come from federal uh, authorities like the FBI or ATF, especially for small jurisdictions. So there's a significant role that the federal government can play. But you know, one of the things I think the federal government can do, frankly, is under Janet Reno, each federal district, we're in the central district, it's about like you know, half a dozen counties here in Southern California, uh, you know, judicial districts. Uh, let's have these hate crime working groups. Let's really, you know, keep them up. One of the things that I did in, in 92, 93, I did a best practices study that was published in Stanford Law and Policy Review. And there were certain things that we found. Some things should be done at the local and state level, particularly with regard to outreach, model policies, a message from the top. But the federal government has a role to play. Sometimes that can, that can be just with backing up local authorities who might not have the type of investigative resources and personnel. But also, I think that we should ha have the federal government assist in getting training up to snuff. I participated uh, about 30 years ago for many, many years, well over a decade, with what we call the train the trainer. And it came out of the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. And we would get a cadre of subject matter experts 
uh, from both US and Canada. And we travel throughout North America to different states. But what we would also always do is get local subject matter experts, particularly from local agencies to co-present with us. And that was really effective and very cost efficient. I'd like to see the federal government spearhead that because that's something, uh, an entity that can travel around uh, that would have economies of scale that a small community may not have. We've been discussing hate crimes, in particular hate crimes against Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. And our guest has been Brian Levin. He's the director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism and professor of criminal justice at California State University, San Bernardino. He's the co-author of the book, The Limits of Dissent, and co-author of publications, uh, Report to the Nation, Hate Crimes Rise in U.S. Cities and Counties in the Time of Division and Foreign Interference, and Posing the Why Question, Understanding the Perpetration of Racially Motivated Violence and Harassment. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. And one last thing, call your state legislators and tell them to pass these assembly bills like 58 and 1126. And also call your federal legislators and say, hey, we want the, uh, the data collection law passed. And we also want this newly proposed legislation uh, related to COVID and anti-Asian hate crime passed as well. Thank you very much. Thank you.